I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. Today, we wrap up our series on the origins of the modern public. These programs have reported on the work of an academic research project called Making Publics, which has been investigating the historical roots of our modern sense of the public. In this final episode, you'll hear from the project's director, Paul Yaknin, about what he thinks his group's work means for contemporary society and about what it means for the contemporary universities where he and his colleagues work. The academy feels increasingly like it doesn't have a public voice. And one of the things that we said right from the beginning is that we not only want to study publics, we want to make a public. We want scholarship to be able to speak in a way that matters. And the idea is that by understanding the history of publicity and public making, we can make a difference in the way we make public life. We'll also look at the way new communications technologies are changing the very idea of the public. Making a public today can be as easy as making a two-minute video on your cell phone at the cafe of something that appears curious, posting it to YouTube, and within two days there are 10,000 responses and you've made a public. It was easy. And finally, we'll consider one of the big questions that emerges from the work of the Making Publics researchers. Their historical research shows that there are many publics. But if so, is there still a place for a singular conception of the public good? It's a big gain to think about multiple publics, but it's a loss to forget the importance of the state and the importance of the question of how the public good is understood, how we come to decide what is the public good for a whole society. The public sphere today, in the concluding episode of David Cayley's The Origins of the Modern Public. Here's David Cayley. For the last five years, The scholars whom I've been featuring in this series have been exploring the highways and byways of early modern Europe, looking for the traces of what they call publics. The term was not used in the way they use it during the years between 1500 and 1700, but it expresses their intuition that before any idea of the general public or the public opinion could form, there first had to be smaller publics, who in effect prepared the ground and made the bigger idea thinkable. A public is the expression of some vital interest which draws people together. It's a vortex of attention, open at its edges, not yet amounting to an institution, but still exerting a pull on the shape of the surrounding society. Publics are connected by matters of concern to them, sometimes physical things like maps, printed broadsides, or paintings, sometimes mental things like the French language, the British Empire, the Reformation of the Church. Attending to the ebb and flow of publics, as these scholars have been doing, yields a different picture of society than does the conventional study of its rigid and durable institutional features. A more fluid picture of the underlying movements of interest, affinity, and desire. At the heart of this idea of how society is made are media, the means by which things get around and a common awareness is made possible. In the 16th and 17th century European world that the making publics group studies, the printing press was crucial, directly or indirectly, in the formation of publics. Today, a rapidly changing media landscape is altering public life in ways that we have barely begun to grasp. Darren Barney holds the Canada Research Chair in Technology and Citizenship at McGill. He's been at the center of the Making Publics Project's conversation about media technology and publics in the contemporary world. And I want to begin today's program with his thoughts on how new media are currently remaking public life. The context in which this question has to be considered 
for him is our view of technology in general. He argues that technology, in the largest sense, is the very setting of our lives, a name for the way we live, and yet we exclude it from political consideration. Technology is, aside from just being an ensemble of devices, an account of the good life. It is a materialized account of the best way to be a human being, the best way to live in the world. It is a concretization of one conception of the good. Liberalism and liberal democracy are premised on the foundational commitment that each individual is the ultimate arbiter of his or her own good, and that no one should be forced to live according to a good that is not their own. And it's for this reason that liberal polities want to leave questions of the good outside of political consideration, because the implications of deliberating politically over the question of what is good are that someone is going to have to live according to a good that's not their own. So we leave these questions ethical questions. We leave these outside of political consideration. That's for the private realm. That's for you to decide. And so what I would suggest is that one of the outcomes of that aspect of liberalism is that technology as a good, as an account of the good life, gets left off the table of political consideration. Darren Barney defines liberalism as the political philosophy that tries to be neutral about what is ultimately good, and so leaves technology off the table, except in marginal cases. But such neutrality, he says, is impossible. It just means that under the pretense of individual freedom, technology rules. The thing is that when liberal regimes tell themselves that they don't embody a specific conception of the good, that they are neutral on the question of the good life, and that really they leave that to individuals to decide for themselves, they tell themselves a lie. Because, of course, liberalism is a particular conception of the good life. And it just so happens that liberalism is a conception of the good life that fits very well with technology as a conception of the good life. The idea of individual mastery, the idea of rationality, the idea of people being able to apply themselves to their world and come up with the best, most effective, most powerful means of controlling it. These Ideas that are built into liberal conceptions of individual freedom and autonomy are also the ideas that are at the basis of the technological enterprise. And not coincidentally, they're also the same ideas that are at the basis of the capitalist economic enterprise. And so you have these three things that go together very well, liberalism, capitalism, and technology. And they constitute a kind of unexamined ethos, I think not unexamined by philosophers and critics and all of that, but unexamined publicly, unexamined as political questions, as things that ought to be open to public debate. They're generally off the table. And this is the kind of setting that is provided for citizenship, for politics, by liberal democratic technological and capitalist societies. It's one where the fundamental commitments are simply taken for granted as good and therefore not subjected to political judgment. Technology, in Darren Barney's view, sets the very terms on which we live. We can't subject it to political judgment because it creates the environment within which our politics are conducted. The way we imagine Canada, he says, is a prime example. In the Canadian context in recent years, we've been going through another episode of intense technological nationalism. Technological nationalism has long been a characteristic of Canadian political culture. In recent years, we've been going through an accelerated episode of this, I would say, an intensified episode of technological nationalism by way of what is often referred to as the innovation agenda or Canada's transformation to an innovation society. Public documents, public discourse, popular literature, 
over the last decade, government plans and pronouncements, have all converged on a consensus that what we are and what we ought to be is an innovation nation. The 100th anniversary edition of Maclean's magazine, Canada's Century of Innovation, where the entire last century of Canadian history was reread as a century of in something that gets called innovation that is now associated with the very fabric of the Canadian soul, with the depths of the Canadian psyche, psyche. We have always been innovators, and we always will be innovators. And so we must do everything we possibly can to continue to put in place the political and economic conditions that allow innovation to happen unimpeded by things like doubt and skepticism and naysayers. And there's developed a really kind of widespread public pedagogy around this idea. And this is, for me, just the latest expression of technologically nationalist political culture in Canada that systematically excludes from debate a whole range of questions about technology and technological development that might otherwise be on the table. Never mind the grand question of technology as an account of the good life, but questions about where the money goes, who gets it for what purposes, why resources are distributed this way instead of that way, what regimes of regulation and governance and taxation should be, how resources get distributed in this country. All of these questions systematically depoliticized by appeal to our national destiny as innovators. This for me is a kind of perfect example of the kind of setting that a technological society provides for the possibility of politics, which is to say an impoverished setting in which not just technology itself, but a whole range of other aspects of social life are systematically depoliticized by appeal to technological imperatives. It would seem, from what Darren Barney has said so far, that technology in the large sense in which he uses the term is a comprehensive and inescapable fate. And that is pretty much what the tradition of thought that he belongs to, from Martin Heidegger to George Grant, has concluded. But even so, Barney says, there remains the question, what then? I think that this is the great agony of anyone who takes technology seriously. You know, one of Heidegger's... Uh, quips along the way was that any attempt to control technology by democratic means is itself technological behavior. That same spirit of mastery, we can control it, we can direct it, we can exploit it. That impulse is the same as the technological impulse. That is agonizing because what that leaves you with is very few political options. Now, I think a genuine Heideggerian would say, that's the deal. You're there. You've figured it out. But I also come from the world of democratic political activism. I also come from the world of social democratic tradition in Canada that was built by people who refused to accept arguments like that, not necessarily about technology, but arguments like that about the economy. The refusal to accept that there's nothing to be done is the source of all political attempts at anything. Philosopher I'm reading right now, French Alain Badiou, refers to this as courage, which he defines as endurance of the impossible. We don't endure the impossible by passively acquiescing. We endure the impossible by acting into it. And that kind of sensibility is from where I draw the motivation to insist on democratic political engagement with technology, despite my philosophically derived awareness of the impossibility of that. One can recognize technology as a fate and a preemption of political judgment, Darren Barney says, and still attempt a critical engagement with it. 
And this is what he has tried to do in various writings on the possibilities of citizenship in the age of digital networks. One of the questions he has asked is whether the proliferation of communication technologies has had a politicizing or a depoliticizing effect. We have an explosion of modes of publicity, modes of publication, modes of social organization. And one question that often gets asked of that variety of emerging modes of social organization is, are they political and what's political about them? Are they political simply because they exist? Is a flash mob that shows up in a downtown square and starts doing the pogo dance, apparently spontaneously for no apparent reason, is that a political act simply because it's a bunch of people doing something together that they're all committed to, even if it otherwise lacks explicit political content, even if we're willing to have a very broad definition of what political content might be. There is a large body of thought and criticism out there today that would say all of these things are political simply because they happen, simply because they interrupt the customary way that we inhabit public space, simply because they force a moment of question, whether it's aesthetic, cultural, political. They interrupt our normal experience of time and space. And so these are political and public in that sense. But others would say these are in fact depoliticized surrogates for more robust forms of political engagement. These are then publics that are in a way systematically arrayed against the possibility of politics in the public square rather than exemplars of politics in the public square. They're what we do instead of doing politics and by doing it satisfy something of our appetite for collective engagement, but leave real politics to the side. The public sphere was defined by German philosopher Jürgen Habermas as a space of discussion and debate, not always bearing directly on the state, but broadly concerned with public affairs and tending toward the formation of a general or public opinion. Darren Barney's question is whether the multiplying means of making publics hasn't washed a lot of the political color out of the public sphere. Everyone now wants your feedback. Voting for your favorite this or your not-so-favorite that is epidemic. Polls chart minute fluctuations in public opinion. Well-rehearsed flash mobs appear out of nowhere. So much is made public that it seems to swamp the very idea that a society might have a single political focus or a singular public sphere. Publicity loses its value. One thing that I think is characteristic of the contemporary condition under which emerging publics are being made is that it's easy. Publics today in the contemporary media environment can be made almost instantly. There's a lot of hidden work that's gone into producing the technological conditions in which that becomes possible. But making a public today can be as easy as making a two-minute video on your cell phone at the cafe of something that appears curious, posting it to YouTube, and within two days there are 10,000 responses to that posting. And you've made a public. It was easy. Flash mobs and curious happenings at the local cafe do not, of course, exhaust the possibilities of network technologies. Darren Barney recognizes that new media have also been put to genuinely political uses, and that all the ways in which people try to bend digital technologies to their own purposes are implicitly political. The first time that electronic mail was used which was never intended by the designers of networked computers. It was a political act because it was an appropriation, an unintended appropriation of a technological device that was designed for something else that opened a wide range of possibilities for human interaction. And that it did so intentionally, that if someone said, hey, we could do this with it instead of this, there's a political judgment entailed there. 
and that people today who are engaged in using digital networks in unforeseen ways to circulate content, intellectual property, are doing something political, are making a political judgment about the world that they live in. It may not be one that we agree with or think is advisable, but nevertheless, in the way in which they're mobilizing the technology and engaging with it, even though they're not engaged in explicit discourses necessarily about what's just and unjust in terms of who can own an idea or who can own the expression of an idea, by virtue of their appropriation of this technology and their practice with it, they're doing something that has to be understood as politically significant, motivated, and intentioned. Darren Barney's first book was called Prometheus Wired, The Hope for Democracy in the age of network technology. In the ancient Greek mythology, Prometheus was chained to a rock by Zeus, the king of the gods, for giving humanity fire. For Barney, it's a story about the wrong kind of hope. One of the things that's characteristic of the technological enterprise is blind hope that this is ultimately what Prometheus gets punished for, is instilling blind hope in their breasts. It's not the gift of fire so much, it's the blind hope, causing them not to foresee their own doom. This is why he gets chained to the rock. And that blind hope really characterizes the technological enterprise. The kind of hope that I think may be the way out of the technological enterprise is a hope that is not blind, a kind of hope that is a perseverance, and one only perseveres when one has a pretty good estimation of what one's facing, and that you can't just make it otherwise. And so you persevere. Why do you persevere? Because you have hope, but it's not blind hope. It's hope that is steeped in a very strong understanding of that which you cannot simply change. And I think it's if we come around to that kind of hope that that in a contradictory way seems to open up small possibilities for living differently. Recognizing technology as something we cannot simply change or control can have the paradoxical effect of creating hope, Darren Barney says. But a modest, chastened, realistic hope not blind faith that the next technology will surely save us. Technology has become so pervasive and inescapable that it now appears as almost a second nature. And this inspires the thought that it may always have been so. This is characteristic of many of the of, of some of the more interesting contemporary discussions of ethics and technology, which start from the premise that technology is not this thing that is outside us, that is visited upon us, but that in fact it is what makes us us, that we have from the beginning been technological. It's not some modern invention that all of a sudden at some point in history that corresponds to Habermas's bourgeois public sphere, there came this thing that was technology and we've been suffering under its yoke ever since. We have to come around to the idea that it's part of us now, probably always has been, and so how do we live well given that? You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Darren Barney sees technology as a depoliticizing influence on public life. First, because it remains outside politics, transforming ways of life without our ever being able to ask, are these changes good? And second, because it multiplies the means of publicity to such an extent that public life is potentially deprived of all shape and focus. Everyone, in effect, becomes a public of one. 
This threat of a dispersion or scattering of attention is also invoked in a second great debate about the public sphere. This one touched off by the politics of identity. When Jürgen Habermas published his book The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere in 1962, he defined the public sphere as a more or less unified national space in which citizens came together to discuss the good of that particular state. By the time the book appeared in English nearly 30 years later, the reasons for the delay are incidental, the situation had changed quite dramatically. Sociologist Craig Calhoun is the director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University, and he organized the conference that greeted the English publication of Habermas's already celebrated book, with Habermas present. He then edited the papers that were presented there for a volume called Habermas and the Public Sphere. By the time Habermas's book was translated into English in 1989, questions about difference, identity, the importance of spaces in which groups could develop their different ways of life had moved to the fore in political thought. And so the engagement is shaped by a different political context. And now the idea of a sort of unified collective discussion seems harder and possibly oppressive. So the kind of issues that Charles Taylor talks about as a politics of recognition intersect with the public sphere discussion. They weren't a part of the original discussion at all. That just wasn't an issue. But it's a big issue when the translation appears. Craig Calhoun has been centrally involved in the discussion of the character of the public sphere that has gone on ever since Habermas's book first focused the issue back in 1989. And he can see both sides of the story. There are gains and there are losses to this. The gains include attention to lots of kinds of public activity that are not explicitly state-centered. They may be political in the sense that the personal is political, but they aren't necessarily centered on state-level politics. And yet there's important transformations going on in a variety of areas of life. The women's movement is a good example that sometimes touch on state-level politics and sometimes are very personal, that are social movement organized and not political party organized, and where a women's public centered around women's bookstores and certain departments and universities and things like that helped to animate this discussion, though it also spreads in the broader public. The idea of multiple publics then seems tangible and clear, though it sort of begs the question of whether there is any larger public in which these various multiple publics are connected to each other. Is there, for example, a point at which the new religious right, having developed its discussion inside its particular public, a counter-public, decides that it can engage the larger public sphere more fully, that it can get involved in discussions at the level of the whole country or even internationally. So my short summary on this would be it's a big gain to think about multiple publics, but it's a loss to forget the importance of the state and the importance of the question of how the public good is understood, how we come to decide what is the public good for a whole society. And the celebration of multiple publics could be fragmenting, or it could be depoliticizing when you say, well, every theater has a public, and uh, there's a public for classical music, and there's a public for punk rock. At some point then, what you've said is that there are lots of arenas in which people are open to form and express their own tastes, but you haven't answered the question of whether there's any way for diverse people to come together and constitute a set of public values or the public good or deliberate about public policies for a country as a whole, let alone internationally. In debates about whether the public is properly plural or singular, Craig Calhoun has tried to keep alive Habermas's insistence that public discussion must, at some point, come together. But he has also been a critic of Habermas. 
In the structural transformation of the public sphere, Habermas suggests that the public sphere was originally a bourgeois formation, which later became more inclusive. Calhoun thinks that the public sphere in the later 18th century was relatively open and included non-elite figures like Tom Paine, the author of Common Sense and the Rights of Man and a staymaker by trade, and that it actually became more exclusive in the early 19th century, when people like Paine and the radical journalist William Cobbett, to take another example, were in effect expelled. The bourgeois public sphere, in Calhoun's view, was neither the original nor the archetypal form of popular engagement in public affairs. It was rather an attempt to define and stabilize a realm of respectable, polite opinion. And seeing it this way, he is not sympathetic to the idea that the history of the public sphere is a simple decline and fall narrative. There was once a public sphere where opinion was shaped by free exchange, but its utopian promise was snuffed out by powerful mass media, public relations, and other forms of opinion management. He sees a more variegated pattern, with moments of opening and moments of closing, beginning before the 18th century and continuing today. Rather than simply a unidirectional change, it was good and it gets worse, there is an ebb and flow and there are periodic reorganizations in which the amount of public activity grows, the diversity of opinions grow, and then there is some level of consolidation, sometimes with a great deal of power and oppression, sometimes with less of that. But more than once, there is this cycle of opening up and then either closing down or neglecting and allowing greater apathy into the public realm. And I don't think that there's a fixed relationship of uh, that to any particular configuration of class or other actors. I think this is something that is directly political, and it's directly up to the action, the making or the closing down of publics by um, various different sorts of actors, and certainly by different technical and other influences. You know, Electronic communication computers coming on the scene will have an impact on print journalism, just as the printing press had an impact that made possible all of those handbills and pamphlets that David Zarat is writing about in the 17th century. Historian David Zarat, whom Craig Calhoun mentions here, was one of the contributors to the collection I mentioned earlier, Habermas and the Public Sphere, which Calhoun edited. Zarat argues that the pamphleteering religious publics of the middle years of the 17th century in England already constituted a public sphere. For him, the polite public sphere of the 18th century was an effort at consolidation and retrenchment, an attempt to put a lid on the wilder 17th century public sphere where too many people were claiming the right to think for themselves. But if the public sphere ebbs and flows and comes and goes in this way, what of today? Well, in some ways, Craig Calhoun sees the public sphere of today as in a period of opening and expansion. New technology and new groups vying for a voice have created an unruly situation in which there are no universally accepted centers of authority. One of the problems in our present-day public life is that we have a real deficit in creating authority or in the authority-conferring functions. The media doesn't do it. The media chases it. It chases fame or it chases the prominence of something. Now, I think that's not just true of the media. I think that's true across our institutions, that we have a crisis since really the 1960s forward in the capacity to establish authority. We have critiqued, destabilized, democratized, changed a variety of institutions in such a way that we have weak mechanisms for arriving at authoritative understandings. And authority here, I think, is always something that adheres in our common understanding as the recognition of something as significant or worth listening to. 
We have these problems partly because there's been a simultaneous left-wing and right-wing assault on all forms of authority, including the state. So a kind of libertarianism of the right, a kind of romantic anti-authoritarianism from the 60s on the left. And we've had a hard time reestablishing widely understood and accepted authority. I think that the critiques were often well-leveled. I think patriarchal authority was a problem in the family and still sometimes is. I think there are a lot of authority structures that are problems, but I think we still need authority. Authority, Craig Calhoun says, is founded on common understanding. There has to be some common allegiance that integrates particular publics in a vision of the good of all. But this integration is lacking. It's a problem that he thinks takes quite an acute form in the micro-society to which he belongs, the university, and one that his Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University was set up to address. The idea of a university, of universal knowledge, includes, among other things, the idea that all its different parts are communicating with each other. And the reasons for public funding of universities include the idea that they will contribute public goods to the larger society. And I think we can ask questions on both sides of that. I think that universities have become compartmentalized in ways that are problems for their public knowledge function. Departments and specialties inside departments dominate most of the discourse. Most academic articles are written for a very tiny number of fellow specialists, if anyone reads them at all. I'm always startled by the statistic that the average academic article is cited slightly less than once. <laughs> so, you know, they are written partly just to be lines on your CV or evidence in your grant applications, but they are read, but they're read by specialists mainly. There is a huge premium placed on the discovery of new knowledge rather than learning what's out there and reproducing it and teaching it, synthesizing it in different ways. So the finding an isolated new fact is valued more than finding a good way to put facts together. So there are a variety of issues in the knowledge production part. But there are deep issues in the extent to which there's an internal conversation in which there is a public process inside the university of connecting different aspects of knowledge to each other. That's really been damaged. That's one side of this in which the university is less good at public knowledge than it could be. The other side is communicating outward to the rest of society, starting with the teaching functions, right? That, that the most important communicative function of the university is actually between teachers and students, but the most valued is the writing of scientific technical articles and so forth. The extent to which the university, in fact, helps to raise the quality of public discourse should be a basic test for every at least publicly funded university, and indeed every private university in this country which gets a tax exemption. That can happen by certainly educating students so they can participate better in public discourse. It can also happen by having encouragement for professors and others to enter that discourse on the basis of their actual research and knowledge and to help bring that information into a wider kind of public discourse. And I think the incentive system is just against that on both sides, on both teaching and communication to the public beyond the university. So academia is dramatically underperforming, it seems to me. We could go on and analyze other kinds of issues, but it's underperforming in its internal communication, it's underperforming in its external communication, and they're linked. Because if we have a hard time figuring out what's important, the authority conferring function, and having a discussion about it inside among fellow professors, that's going to suggest we're going to have a hard time engaging outside and with other constituencies too. Because other constituencies aren't interested in the view of political science or the view of sociology or the view of anthropology. They're interested in various social and political issues from which they'd like to hear from a variety of people who know something. So we don't have an institution that is very well set up to deliver. We have fabulous amount of knowledge, most of which lies dormant from the point of view of the public discourse. Disconnection within the university disconnection between the university and society, 
and disconnection generally, is, in Craig Calhoun's estimation, a large and even somewhat ominous problem. In his country, he sees a growing reservoir of popular dissatisfaction, which seems to find an outlet only in movements like the Tea Party. And this raises urgent questions for him about how new publics are currently being formed. Where are these sort of conservative populist angry responses to the current economic crisis getting their ideas? How are they getting organized? How do they get their voice? What does it matter that at the moment there is more sympathy among journalists and politicians on the right than on the left, and so that voice is growing there. Is that because it's intrinsically right-wing, or is that to do with how public life's organized? The left-wing are full of people who are cosmopolitan intellectuals wishing to be jetting off to Davos and not paying attention to people who are staying at home and losing their jobs. So that kind of inquiry, it seems to me, is very important how movements get going because they shape the um, discourse in huge ways. It's not a seminar room in which things just proceed at their own pace. It gathers steam from this, you know, how it will get represented in films. So I think that we live in a somewhat unfortunate laboratory with the working out of what the possible futures are after the economic crisis, with a sense that there is some sort of not being heard. You know, people call it a disenfranchisement, but I think it's less not getting to vote than it is not getting hurt, a feeling that no matter how loud I shout, I don't get heard on the part of large numbers of people, not just in the U.S. with its particular version, but in almost every country, who feel that some mix of you know, the internationals getting valued more than their country, that the rights of immigrants are a problem for the rights of natives, that things aren't going the way they should go in their lives. And instead of finding ways to develop projects in the public sphere through social movements or other kinds of activity that might allow that sentiment to inform a variety of different visions, it's kind of being relegated to the side and left available for only relatively unattractive political projects. are in constant formation. When pathways into the polite public sphere are blocked, as Craig Calhoun just pointed out, counter-publics will form and find their own pathways. The dynamism of this process is something that one can see very clearly in the historical research of the Making Publics group. But the situation today is also dramatically different than it was in the 16th and 17th centuries. At that time, the creation of a civil sphere where the undertakings of private persons could take on public significance was something radically new, and it had to overcome the tremendous resistance and inertia of an older idea of society as an organic whole, a single body with a single head, the monarch, united in a single faith expressed by the one church. Today, publics assemble and dissolve with astonishing speed, and an oppressive unity has given way to a worrying fragmentation. Paul Yachnan is the founder and director of the Making Publics Project and a professor of English at McGill, specializing in the theater of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. He says that one reason why historical study of publics is important to scholars like him is because the contemporary university has increasingly been cut off from the wider public. The academy feels increasingly like it doesn't have a public voice. And one of the things that motivates me as someone inside the academy is to engage productively in a way that matters to people. And I learned very early on that you can't speak to the public. You need to target groups. But you cannot ever put aside the idea of the public. 
the idea of an inclusive body, which is an ideal rather than a myth. And one of the things that we said right from the beginning is that we not only want to study publics, we want to make a public. We want scholarship to be able to speak in a way that matters outside the university, not to the public, but in terms of an ideal of the public. Now, to what degree we're able to do that, time will tell. But the idea is that by understanding the history of publicity and public making, we can make a difference in the way we make public life. I mean, all of us. This history, in Paul Yakman's view, exemplifies what he's just been saying. Publics are distinct formations, each embodying a particular interest. You can't address the public, Yaknin says. You're always talking to the Shakespeare Society or the Young Farmers of Canada or whoever it may be. But what makes publics publics, and not just interest groups, is an idea of the general good, which the word public points to. Publicness, for him, involves a certain self-consciousness, something he sees a lot of in his beloved Shakespeare. It has to do with the ways, the, the degree to which people who are involved in publics understand what they are doing as taking place vis-a-vis -a, -vis a larger ideal. You know, one of the great things about the development of my understanding is I realize that it's, it's not only about what people do, but it's about how people understand what they do. Uh, one of the reasons that Shakespeare never stops reflecting on his own practice as a, as a playwright Every single scene in Shakespeare is metatheatrical. Every single scene says, Oh, audience, you're here, aren't you? You're involved in this production. This is just a play, after all. All of it is reminding the audience that they're making this play. Con Self-consciousness is part of what public life is about. It's not only doing something that's public. It's about knowing that you're doing something that's public, that what you're doing can leak. What you're doing has an orientation toward futurity that it can live beyond this moment and it can live beyond your lifetime. The public, as Paul Yaknan understands it, is a conversation over time. Shakespeare makes a public in the first place out of his need to please his playgoers. But by his superb awareness of what he is doing, he also inserts himself in this larger conversation and eventually achieves the enduring publicity that comes from contributing to it. This understanding frames Yaknin's view of publics today. He thinks it's good that new media allow new and ever more refined publics to form, but only so long as these publics continue to orient themselves within a longer and wider view of what constitutes the public. And here he thinks the humanities carry a special importance and responsibility. The university ought to be adding this dimension to public life, he says in conclusion. But scholars in the humanities have lost their way. It has to do with a very, very deep institutionalization of the academy. Institutionalization is not always a bad thing, but with the deepening of institutionalization comes the whole development of a very, very complex forms of credentialization, large barriers to participation, and it's not necessary on the humanity side. We took a wrong turn. I, I absolutely believe that, uh, that we took a wrong turn. And we thought we have to be so specialized and our language has to be so specialized and the kinds of knowledge that we have has to be so specialized that ordinary people won't understand it. If they do, they won't take what we do seriously. Uh, so the very special forms of language that we have developed, ways of talking, um, ways of seeing in the institution of the academy have served that economy, have served that institutionally specific economy. So partly what we've tried to do, and it's not an easy thing to do when you're raised in a particular language game, is to learn how to speak English again, or French, or Italian, or whatever, what have you. And I think we have done that. So I think we're just a small 
bit of the puzzle uh, about restoring the academy and especially the humanities to its public purposefulness. I fight the battle inside the university and outside the university and outside the university. Inside the university, very often, it's very results oriented. What is research for? Research cures cancer. That's the answer. Well, we don't do that in the humanities. We don't develop new technologies. So what do we do? Well, we develop new ways of understanding. Is that important? Yes. New ways of seeing. Yes. It's not a commodity. Uh, it's not something we can package. Uh, it's not something we can administer uh, with a hypodermic needle. But what we have, which I think is important, is the understanding that we weren't born yesterday. And in order to make public life valuable again, it is valuable, but to give it back a certain robustness, uh, it's important to understand its history, where it comes from. Uh, and I think if we understand how public making, in fact, changed the shape of early modern Europe, we can regain our sense of the capacity of our public making to make a, a difference in modern Canada. So it's partly that, it's also partly this sense that we're involved in a long-term project. Scholarship is something that began before us and will go on after us. And public life, to be public life, has to be precisely like that. It has to be mindful of its past and oriented toward futurity. And scholarship, if it's going to have a life outside the academy, must refashion itself like that so that we see what we're involved in as a project that is the work of many hands over the long term. And each of us is in a long-term conversation with others. You know, we have a language within the academy, one finds it, especially in letters of recommendation and so on. And it's a, it's a language about breakthroughs. It's a language we borrowed from science. And breathtaking breakthroughs that change everything. Uh, there are breathtaking breakthroughs that change some things. Nothing changes everything. And everything is subject to critique and correction. And once we get that into our heads, I think we'll have a better a sense of reintegrating scholarship into the uh, intellectual life of society. Paul Yaknan, professor of English at McGill and the director of Making Publics. My thanks to him and his colleagues for their cooperation in the making of this series. On Ideas, you've listened to the final episode of The Origins of the Modern Public. All programs in the series are available as podcasts at cbc.ca slash podcasting or they can be streamed from our website. The Origins of the Modern Public was prepared and presented by David Cayley with the help of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Our webmaster is Liz Nage. If you want to know about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter at cbc.ca slash ideas. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next.